Welcome to the Real Sports Science Podcast. Welcome back with Matt and David. This is episode... I got it wrong two episodes ago. This is episode 45. Episode 45, and we have got another guest, Hattie Harrison, who's currently doing his PhD uh, in exercise physiology in skeletal muscle adaption. Do you work a lot with cyclists in your PhD as well, or...? Yeah, so all the uh, training models are all based around cycling. All based around cycling. Okay. Uh, um, he's speaking of cycling. He's also a cycling coach, but that is officially completely separate to your PhD. Yeah. So, but he's got cycling in his PhD. He's also a cycling coach with Loughborough. Is it the Lightning, the Lightning Squad, or is it Loughborough University? Uh, the kind of big umbrella is the Loughborough Cycling Academy, and right. then Lightning Cycling Team sits within that. It's just within that, and you do work with them as well. Yeah. Um, we're not sure. We've been just trying to figure out what year Patty's in for his PhD. <laughs> we're not quite sure. So by the end of this episode, we'll try to figure out what year he's in, but maybe two, maybe three. Okay, two and a half. Two and a half. Part-time. Four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, probably the, the, I think the coolest thing is Patty was an ex-pro squash player. No, he was an ex. He is an ex-pro squash player. So you did. Uh, you played squash on the world tour for a while. How long did you do that for? Uh, it wasn't too long. I was sort of breaking into it, and then various injuries and surgeries along the way um, cut it short. But yeah. yeah, got out to Australia to play some tournaments at one point. So that's a pretty cool experience. How cool is that, Matt? Paddy, do you know Elsie uh, Baggy? Yes. Yeah, yeah. The, the brothers. Does he have a brother? Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> In the school I was working at, one of the squash players was like, oh, can you put on a squash match on the gym? And uh, she said, she was like, yeah, can you put a squash match on the gym and on the gym TV? And I said, yeah, sure. Just give me the names. And she said, someone against Elsie Baggy. I yeah. promise you, I spelt that name so incorrectly. I put too many vowels, too many consonants. It just didn't make sense. And then she, and then I saw when it came up, I'm, wow, I messed up that name. But yeah, yeah. I know squash. And I know you cycling. I watched uh, Unchained, I think it is. So sort of... Oh, nice. Short sort of across Unchained. Yeah. yeah. We're yeah. set. We can get into that. That's yeah. that cool. Yeah. Yeah. What we need to do, what we need to do is do like have, do an episode or a YouTube video where we go play squash against Patty and just see how bad we are. What, 2v2? We'll go, we'll go yeah. Two that's what I want to do. 2v1. There's a funny story about that. There were two, when I first started with PhD here, Two guys I was sitting next to, um, they just got into squash and they were playing squash and they said, oh, do you want to come along and play? I was like, yeah, that'd be, that'd be good fun. Um, and I hadn't told them that I'd played quite a lot of squash in the past. Quite so a lot. We, so we rocked out yeah. and yeah, it was quite funny. We did two, two against one and there was a lot of running around. Cool. <laughs> You're just like, what's happening? Yeah. That's, that's so funny. funny. Yeah, so really excited. Um, this is going to be exciting. Maybe one of two episodes or maybe a couple exciting things happening in the future with Patty. Um, but, but we want to talk about coach-athlete relationship. Uh, the biggest things Patty's learned while working with the cycling team, kind of how to blend your, your PhD with the cycling, because obviously it's not directly related, but it's very related. So how do you kind of blend those two in a way that one doesn't take over the other uh, priorities and training and, and this idea of like how to build culture, how to build a culture where people enjoy coming to train, even when it's not going well, like it's easy to enjoy training when it's going good. But how do you build a culture where people want to go? And especially in cycling, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit and kind of the intricacies of cycling of, of how do you 
get somebody to be excited about coming to training and being part of a team when maybe for them in their journey of the cyclist, it's not going very well or as a team as a whole. So really looking forward to this, uh, this chat. This is the Real Sports Science Podcast, episode 45. Let's go. So Patty, it'd be amazing for the people who haven't been able to have a couple of coffees with you like I have in the last couple of months, just to get a bit of information um, kind of off the back of what I said, where you've come from, what you do, uh, and then we'll, we'll just kind of go from there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, I guess my journey in sport started playing a bunch of different sports when I was younger, football, rugby, tennis, squash, got anything going at school. Um, when I was maybe 12, 13, decided to focus on squash. That was kind of my thing. And with go around the country playing in junior tournaments um, and yeah, carried on playing squash through to sort of first, second year at university, um, started playing some tournaments on the world tour, um, went down to Australia to play a few tournaments. Along that journey, there were a bunch of injuries and hip surgeries and a shoulder surgery, which at the end it was like, right, this is, this is not a sensible thing to be doing anymore. Um, at that point, transitioned over to cycling. I'd done a bunch of cycling kind of off the off-court training for squash, so that had always been quite a big part of that. Um, yeah, and then kind of start my journey in cycling. I guess my coaching side of things when I was 15, 16, started coaching squash. And then when I was at uni, started coaching endurance athletes kind of across running, uh, triathlon, cycling. Um, and then the kind of cycling stuff really took off. And when I got here to Loughborough, uh, coming up to four years ago now, I um, started my PhD here with uh, Richard Ferguson and Stephen Bailey looking at training adaptations, skeletal muscle. Um, and the main question we're trying to answer is how does the duration of low intensity training impact on the adaptations you get? Right. Um, so the, the kind of way I like to frame it is say you've got, say you're going to do eight hours of training in a week. Would it be better to do four two hour training sessions mm. or two four hour training sessions? And I could give you a bunch of reasons why one might be better than the other, but I can't really answer that question with any hard evidence. Right. Um, so the first study is trying to isolate that quite acutely and someone comes in, they're doing two hours of cycling, come back on another day, they do five hours and we take muscle biopsies out of the quad and then look at various signaling pathways. So um, yeah, that's where that's where it's very involved, like very deep physiology stuff. Yeah, it's it's ended up probably more molecular biology than I probably thought at the start. I thought it was gonna be kind of a small study there and then a training study and then we had COVID and uh, yeah. had to change plans. Um, so yeah it's ended up quite <laughs> niche signaling pathways, which yeah, is interesting. So sorry, is it is it sort of looking at micro dosing or just the switch of like um is it micro dosing in any way just to just to clarify for myself yeah so it's more kind of how so you they come in and they do uh, so they come in they ride for two hours and we take a muscle biopsy uh, at rest before they do anything and then we take a muscle biopsy immediately post exercise and then three and six hours after the exercise bout um, and what we're looking at is the pathways that are involved in generating more mitochondria, generating new capillaries, the pathways that might make you better at oxidizing fat versus carbohydrate. Um, and then we're looking at those same pathways when they come in and do five hours. So is there anything special about extending the duration of the common term out there now is zone two training, that kind of long mm-hmm. endurance ride type of, type of thing. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the overview of it. What what have you found so far? Have you have you actually been able to analyze any bits of data? Have you gone and carried out 
some testing yet or yeah so at the moment we've collected all the data i've got loads of muscles stored in the freezer at the moment uh so at the moment i can i've got muscle glycogen can david have some for his calves oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> <Brutal. laughs> they wouldn't fit they're too big <laughs> it's too it's 9 30 in the morning it's too early for time <laughs> crossing lines already oh, mate, I'm in the future I've been storing up I've been writing down all these all these things since uh, while well, you've been sleeping mate yeah that's true you got a head start oh that's funny so now uh, we've got but yeah sorry sorry carry on <laughs> we've got the acute physiological data so how carbohydrate and fat metabolism has changed over the course of those exercise bouts uh, uh, blood lactate blood glucose responses uh VO2, so the kind of progressive loss in efficiency as the exercise bout goes on. Um, and then the muscle glycogen data, I'm just finishing up running at the moment. Um, and then the kind of main meat of it is to get into those signaling pathways. So optimizing a couple of techniques at the moment. Um, and then, yeah, hopefully in the next six months, you should have that data um, coming out. What do you think you're going to see? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's going to be something about the five-hour exercise bout. Yeah, um, there must be a reason why cyclists and endurance athletes are extending the duration of these sessions. Mm. I guess it's not it's not completely fair because the the right comparison would be to match the volume. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just wanted to look at it acutely. Um, so yeah, you're not comparing like they're, they're, they're two different things. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the hypotheses is that when you extend the duration of exercise, so you start at low intensity, just working essentially with your slow twitch muscle fibers as the duration extends, you start to deplete the muscle glycogen in those fibers mm. and you start recruiting fast twitch fibers. So one of the bits, one of the things that we're doing is we're separating out individual muscle fibers, figuring out, okay, here's a pool of type one muscle fibers, here's a pool of type two muscle fibers, mm. and then what are the signaling pathways in the in the slow twitch muscle fibers and the fast twitch muscle fibers wow. to see actually if you extend the duration of exercise, do you set up a whole bunch of good signaling pathways in the fast twitch fibers? Um, so I think that could be one of the benefits of extending um, the duration. Is you're not only you're not only getting the type one fibers, yeah. you're depleting those, and all of a sudden your type two fibers, which are easily fatigable anyways, are having to do work. Yeah. So if you set up a bunch of kind of aerobic signaling pathways in your type two muscle fibers, yeah. In a lot of endurance sports, that's a really good thing. Right. Um, as long as you can maintain in cycling the ability to sprint when you need to right. and stuff like that. So yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. could be one of the kind of special things about extending duration, yeah. um, which you'd never quite get to if you always did hour and a half, two hour sessions. Um, could get into whether that's different in running, uh, different endurance sports, mm. but I think in cycling especially, I think that, that could be the case. Mm. That's really interesting. And I guess this this kind of leads on to the coaching side of things because you have such an incredible base of knowledge around cycling and your PhD is all about how to make cycling training better. Obviously, I'm sure some of that gets translated into your coaching, mm-hmm. but how do you how do you separate those two out, or or do you separate them out? I guess I'm assuming that you do, yeah. but do you and how do you separate those two out? Yeah. In terms of kind of day to day, yeah, like um, yeah, I guess like day to day scheduling wise, but more of like how does how how do your athletes not become sort of like your mental guinea pigs to try things on? Yeah, so I think the day to day of it, I've tried various different combinations, and some, if I'm honest, haven't worked in the past. I've ended up 
my tendency is to just go and do more coaching. I love doing the, the coaching stuff and that can just creep in. And then all of a sudden you've got a week, two weeks and it's like, what, what, did, you, what did you do on your PhD? Yeah. Uh, so I've tried splitting kind of each day in half. So it's like, all right, in the morning I work on my PhD, in the afternoon I'll do the coaching. That didn't really work because then each day just got a bit jumbled up and there was no kind of really clear boundaries at mm. the moment. I'm trying to do kind of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday on the coaching and then have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, um, I'm protected at least during the day, uh, the PhD stuff, and then we'd either be kind of training camp or, or at the race, mm -hmm. uh, a race on the weekend. Mm -hmm. So that's working a little bit better because at least you can block it, especially with the lab stuff you need. It can't just be like an hour here and yeah. hour there. You've got to basically have a full day to go and tackle the problem. So that's working a little bit better at the moment. Um, and then just use kind of a check-in in the morning and a check-in in the evening and just get back to messages and stuff on WhatsApp and with riders throughout the day on those days and tends to be mm. uh, kind of has working. Especially when you're doing like a five hour study on a bike. Yeah, that's the whole day anyway. <laughs> those days it was like, yeah, you, unless you're just all in on the study day, yeah. you'll screw something up or you'll take a blood at the wrong time or you won't, your head won't be screwed on for the biopsy. Like, there's a lot of things that got to go right for those sort of trials. So it's like, yeah. like all in. Yeah. have got to focus on that. So. Yeah. Yeah. I guess then like, so that's scheduling wise and how do you, and, and I mean, maybe, I guess I've never been in the position where my PhD and where I'm coaching so much and I'm doing a PhD in the same area, but I could see that like, like you the PhD would kind of blunt your knowledge to be a coach. Yep. Maybe. Or I guess I could see that maybe being, do you see that as, as something that you have to watch out for? Because I think like PhD is obviously so academic and so like, like you're thinking really hard in this mm. specific area. Yeah. And then you're going to an athlete who doesn't not care, but isn't worried about that depth that you're talking about in your PhD. Like how do you separate those two that you can be a good PhD student, yeah. a good academic, but also like a good coach to the athletes. Yeah. I think that's evolved over the four years. Yeah. And they don't, the majority of athletes, they don't really care what the latest study said about that you should do this or this might be better to that. Okay, a few of them who are maybe doing human biology or they're doing sports science as a degree yeah. are interested in some of the kind of niche physiology of why this bit of training might work or why that might work. Um, so I think in the first couple of years of the PhD, it was like just fully immerse yourself in all the research, just kind of whatever area you want to read and learn about. Fantastic. So you're going to get a really good grounding of... Physio physiolo physiological underpinnings of endurance <laughs> exercise yeah. and programming and training description and all that sort of yeah. stuff. And then I guess the last couple of years it's been more about, okay, that's there. How do you either communicate that to the athletes, put it into training description, but then understand, I guess if we had a, a, an art of coaching and a science of coaching, kind of you can get the science pretty close to dialed in, mm. but then how do you actually get that to impact performance? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Probably yeah. different, different kettle of fish there. Yeah, so it's definitely something that has evolved. Yeah, you say. So do you think you're better now at kind of taking the the stuff that you learn in your PhD and either applying it or at least like knowing what's important at the moment and what's not, or how far you can take it? I hope so. Okay. <laughs> I hope I'm getting better. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, something's going wrong. I think you also start to almost create a bit of a a model or a philosophy, whatever you want to call it. Yeah about what's really important. So training volume is really important, 
the right dose of training intensity is really important and how you distribute that training across a week. Mm. If you get those three things right, rest up once in a while, you're doing the majority of endurance training right. right. So whether we do four by eight, five by six, or four by 10 intervals, okay, there, there are some slight differences between, between them, but essentially they're, they're all doing roughly the same thing. Mm. Um, so it's just kind of knowing, okay, these are the big rocks that we need to get right, and then we can get a little bit more detailed in certain areas. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess that's when new research comes out. It's like, okay, I see how this fits into my understanding of the whole picture, rather than, oh, my God, these new intervals came out, let's throw them into everyone's program straight yeah. away because they're so cool and they made everyone get really better, so much better in the research paper. Yeah. It's like, ah, yeah, but they might work because of this reason, therefore I think they might work for that person. Mm. So it's just, yeah, sort of zoom. I try and zoom out as much as possible and go, okay, what's really important here? And then we work from there. Yeah. You, you mentioned a lot of like recent literature or new papers that you found, and I was just wondering, when I was doing my bachelor's degree, um, in sports and exercise science and I was quite interested in strength and conditioning I always found it quite hard to search for papers and to understand where to look for or what's the best method and I was wondering if you could just like shed light on how you do it how you find the new papers how you keep up to date with current literature yeah so I guess a couple of ways so one way is um, on the kind of major uh, what they're called not distributed but the, the places where you can search for papers so PubMed uh, there are a couple of other ones. You can set up email alerts. So you can put in your key terms. I think probably my ones are endurance performance, physiology, uh, mitochondria. So I have kind of one set up for sort of PhD relevant stuff, basically so someone, if someone publishes what I'm about to publish, I know that it's come out <laughs> or that I can incorporate into a literature review. Or then there's one that's more sort of coaching focused. And basically whenever any, I think it's on like a fortnightly basis, it basically just pings through a list of, could be 10, 20, if nothing's come out, it's two or three of interesting stuff that's come out in the literature. Uh, if you can, if you make your search terms too broad, then you get a bunch of really random stuff. Mm -hmm. So it'll be, I don't know, it could be um, post-operative ACL care. It's like, interesting, but I don't, I, I'm not going to sit down and read that paper. So that's one way that I do it. Uh, social media, Twitter, um, don't go on it loads, but even just five minutes whizzing through Twitter, saving interesting papers uh, if you follow the right people save mm. them ping them over on email and then you can filter them and, and store them in, in, in various different places um, and then if there's a topic that i'm interested in i generally go and try and find a review paper on it the most recent review which seems like it's got a decent set of authors on and then skim through that and then the interesting bits go and go and find the literature on it so they're probably the three ways that i find stuff it's such a skill yeah it's it's un unbelievable. Like that's something that I've, I think maybe getting better at it, but it's even like, at what point have I, have I read all of the relevant stuff that's happened already? Yeah. Like at what point am I at the point where I can actually now start looking for new papers coming up? You know, yeah. like at what point does that happen? And I'm sure it's not never really is a point, a good point or when you're finished. And like what you said of like knowing like who the authors are. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Like, I just see an author, I'm like, oh, nice, sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> or you kind of know yeah. bit parts of the or universities where yeah, you yeah. see, so there's a bunch of really good uh, endurance pause research coming out of Scandinavia at the moment. So okay. Norwegian universities, Copenhagen's a real hub for muscle biology stuff. So you're pretty sure, or if the, the kind of legal, uh, the, the, the PI at the end of the paper, like if, if their name's on it, 
is probably pretty solid. You're still going to read it and make your own decision about whether it's yeah. legit or not. Um, but I think back to the, the kind of journey of the PhD and the coaching, those first, that year and a half, two years, I was writing the literature review. Like that was a lot of the PhD, was mm-hmm. just dive as deep as you can. And it wasn't, oh my God, I've got to go read about training intensity distribution. That was the PhD. Mm-hmm. So it was almost a, a free reign to just be interested in what you're interested in. Um, and in some areas, I've probably read the majority of stuff on that topic. And then when new stuff goes in, you can go, okay, that links back to that. Or mm-hmm. they've ref- and then you just see the same names come back on and, and do you then, have you gotten to a point where somebody asks a question about something and where you have a discussion, you can start pulling out like bits of information that you've read from certain papers or like, oh, actually, there was this paper here that I remember. Because I find right now, if I'm on a day of reading or, or writing like I have been, mm-hmm. after a couple of days, like I'm in the zone, yeah. I'm reading a paper and then I remember another paper I've read maybe the other day or the weeks, like, oh, actually, that's how that fits together. But then if I'm cold, speaking to someone yeah i'm having my annual review next week and that's like the biggest worry is like i'm not i'm not like i'm not oiled up with like because i've been just reading papers that day yeah you know so like they'll ask me a question and it's just like like i i don't have enough like knowledge or basis enough to like pull these bits of information out yeah it varies in different areas but an experience from my first year annual review um, with Neil Martin, who's kind of more on the muscle physiology side of things. Yeah. I'd written what I thought was a half-decent sort of literature review to start with that put a lot of time into it, and then he absolutely grilled me on it. And it wasn't <laughs> in a nasty way. It was yeah. probably the best thing that he could have done. Yeah. He'd, like, fair play to him. He'd printed the thing off. He'd annotated it. And he was <laughs> like, okay, so how does this, when you say, um, yeah. I don't know, this this protein um switches on this protein like what yeah. do you mean by switches on i was like uh, I, uh it activates it and he's like well what do you mean by activate i was like I, I just i just don't know my stuff well enough so that was that was fantastic uh, i guess for maybe more of the coaching stuff it'll be um i might not be able to give you an author and the exact paper on the spot but it's mm. like oh, i remember there was that group did that thing. Let me try and dig out the paper and ping it over to you. Mm. Um, so it'd be quite a lot of have a coffee or someone or, or you speak to an athlete and it's like, oh, I'll, just, I'll send you an email later with a few things. Um, or if you've, I don't know, if you've put some stuff into a presentation, you ping over a few slides to them afterwards with the kind of key graph. So no, that, 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 that's cool. I guess it's nice to hear that eventually it gets a little better. And I guess you don't realize that it's getting better until like maybe you look back and yeah. Or you have a conversation with someone where you actually get to use, you know, what you've learned. Yeah. You're like, oh, oh, actually, I was able to actually pull some things, or I was able to remember this one group. Yeah. Or maybe I read a paper or I saw a paper, like, oh, I recognize that name actually. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's a danger of a lot of the time. So I guess for yourself, but probably like when you're speaking to your supervisor or people in your research group, hmm. like, oh, they will know all the stuff in this area. Yeah. But then you take yourself outside of that and almost like you remember what everyone else probably doesn't know right. and actually there's a whole bunch of stuff which if you just start from basics is like blimey they, they don't, don't know that stuff right um yeah and i have to sometimes catch myself with that it's like mm. right i can't just dive in with like niche stuff yeah like actually for a lot of people just getting like what are the basics which at the moment they're just reading the latest article on training peaks or cycling yeah. weekly yeah and getting confused with what, what is zone two yeah yeah i was like this is what zone two is right. in a really basic sense yeah um and they're like, ah, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. Not, they don't need to know what signaling pathway is. So. Yeah. Type one, type two fibers. We've talked about that a little bit on the podcast, Matt, of like, 
you get so used to the knowledge that you know. I think I've said this probably at least three separate times. Like you get used to the knowledge that you know that you just kind of assume that everybody else knows that. Yeah. And especially in a PhD where, like you said, everyone knows so much about that specific topic. So you're, you feel like you're, you know, the least. Yeah. But that's only in that little specific, specific area. One thing I've, one thing I found was that like, also, you know, a lot, but, and you forget other people don't know some stuff, but it's also, you know, a lot that you forget some things that you already know. So like you'll be, I've been in conversations with athletes where they ask me a question and I go, and I'll just take a step back and I'm like, hold on, I know this. And then they'll be like, isn't it to do with this? Like they'll answer their own question they have asked me to make me look like an idiot. And then I completely remember. And then I act, I, it's, it looks like I'm acting like I've just gone, oh yeah, yeah, I know what you mean because you said it. But do you know what I mean? Like stuff like that happens or someone will say a buzzword, like even in a podcast with David, even in a podcast like with David or someone, he'll, he'll say like a buzzword about a topic that we're talking about and it will just remind me instantly. I'll be like, oh wait, I do know what he's talking about. Whereas this past five minutes, I'm like, I swear I've covered this. So it's stuff like that where you know, where you try and know so much about everything that you forget little bits. So yeah, it's just, it's just stuff like that. It's just, we're just, I think we're all just too smart. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess that's why. So especially like, well, this podcast has helped me majorly because, and like chatting with you and being able to chat with so many different people in a PhD, but constantly in conversation. So you're always being reminded um, of like little bits either that you did know or how new information then goes with old information that you've had already yeah. or you just get reminded how little you know all the time <laughs> so either one of those <laughs> i think big things for me that have massively helped because i struggle with recall and I, it, again it feels like sometimes you have conversations with people they're just plucking stuff out and you yeah. like, how on earth do you yeah. have that or it's people that are really into history or something and they'll just pluck out a date of this battle and another and that is like but maybe that's their thing and that's what they, they love reading about. But stuff that I've either written about to, to get it into words, to, okay, do I know this thing well enough to put it into concise writing mm-hmm. has been one thing that's really helped. And then like anything that I've presented on or had to or have conversations about, mm-hmm. it goes so easy to like, read it and think, oh, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. But then actually to put it out there, either in words or just talking about it has massively, massively helped mm-hmm. um, to kind of lock it in um, and make sure I actually understand yeah, I think. Yeah. And quick transition from the yeah. PhD to coaching, because yeah. that's a perfect time to transition there. Your coaching gives you the perfect opportunity to do that because yeah. you're forced to and you have to, and you get to on a daily basis when you have to do that. And you probably get immediate feedback when it goes not well, either because they just don't get it or they tell you, like, what are you talking about? Um, what would you say is the biggest thing that you've learned so far as a coach? Broad, but if we took those two sides of the sort of art and science of coaching, it's really understanding the the art side of it and that importance of the coach athlete relationship. Okay, and how powerful that is, mm-hmm. I think, is probably the biggest learning, and that's been a huge one over the last year, eighteen months for myself. Yeah. It's like you know what we're going to talk about yeah, already. Yeah. Athlete-coach relationship. <laughs> I didn't know we were going to have the conversation we just had. That leads quite nicely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. That was, that. It was really nice. It was really good. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, so obviously, like, this athlete-coach relationship, that's, I think, evolved. And there's been so much research or so much more research on that lately. Yeah. Um, I guess what's 
what are the few things that you've learned that are the most important when considering an athlete-coach relationship as you as the coach? Or, or what are the, let's say you're going into a new team, this is kind of the key things that I need to do or I look for to try to build that relationship. Yeah, I, I think the fundamental thing that underpins it for me is effective communication. Mm-hmm. And that could be in the form of in-person conversations. So I guess I'm lucky in the environment that I'm in is that most of them are on campus or they live in Loughborough and I see them at multiple points in person during the week. For a lot of cycling coaches, it's done remotely. Mm. Um, and they could be on the other side of the world, even up to the world tour. You could have a coach, you might, the cyclists might be living in Girona right. and your coach might be in the UK and you might touch base on the phone and it's all over WhatsApp and stuff. So lucky in that sense. But yes, I think effective communication, um, I think that builds a, a a layer of understanding and trust between the coach and the athlete. Um, and that's going to be different for every coach, athlete, kind of pair. Um, kind of what does that dynamic look like? Um, I think something I've been thinking about more recently is this balance between um, challenge and support mm. and knowing when to sort of turn the challenge dial up. But if you're going to turn the challenge dial up, you probably need to turn the support dial up. So if I'm going to suggest someone try something in training or there's a race, I really want them to try and push and do this thing. And that's quite a scary thing for them to do. Mm. They need to know that the support is there for Mm. them. So actually, if they screw it up, I'm not going to get mad at them Mm. because I've said, actually, can you push yourself outside your comfort zone? If actually it comes to start just before the race and they're like, ah, you're there to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, So that balance has has been um, important. And then I think just the idea of, we're going on this journey together. Mm. It's not just one of us. Mm. Um, actually, I guess, co-creating the thing. So very rarely will I make a decision that's just, right, we're doing this. Don't ask me about it. This is what we're doing. A lot of the time is, okay, what do you think about this? Or how are your legs feeling today? Do we need to reshuffle the, the next couple of sessions over the next few days? But you know your body better than I do. I'm, ne- I'm never going to know the athlete mm-hmm. as well as they know themselves. Yeah. Um, so I think that kind of co-creation of this is, we're making the plan together. We're going on this journey together and I can bring my knowledge and expertise and you bring your talents as an athlete, yeah. uh, the work ethic and, and we try and make the thing together. So. Yeah. 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 So off the back of that, you, you mentioned there, um, you know, you're going to push an athlete and you're not going to get mad. And I thought, well, what if, what if something does happen and you do need to have, have you had to have difficult conversations with an athlete that did something they weren't supposed to mm-hmm. or, yeah, where where you were upset with an athlete, whether yeah. it was like in training or a or a competition or outside of that, like how how did you deal how did you deal with that? Yeah, so the the times that's happened, because I was going to say I've been lucky in the fact that we've had a I would say a strong coach athlete relationship to underpin it. Right, that's made difficult conversations so much easier. Right, because if it's a really difficult coach athlete relationship yeah. but there's not a lot of trust there and you don't really understand each other mm. to then layer on a really hard conversation to that i mean who knows what's going to happen if you have one of those but actually if you really understand the athlete there's a mutual trust yeah. they come to you with difficult stuff and then you, they've screwed up or they've done mm. something that you think ah that's kind of crossing the line there we need to have a chat the layer of trust that underpins that mm. you can then just have an open conversation about it mm. um, i think i'm leaning more to the side of let's have a conversation and let me try and understand where you're coming from. Mm. Um, 
And again, that goes back to just communicating. Even in that, even in that meeting, we're communicating, and I'm not just sat here being like, "You did this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. Yeah. Why did you do this? You're supposed to be doing that." Yeah. It's yeah. like, "Why did you do that?" And let's because they probably know it was wrong. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes they don't, and then it's actually quite useful for for you to communicate uh, where you're at with it. But but yeah, trying to understand, okay, well, what what led to that thing? Because if I just say oh, I didn't think that was great, and then that's it, mm. and they don't really know. I don't know how to then help them yeah. resolve that issue. Yeah. And so actually asking them a simple question of how can I support you with this thing going forward? And yeah. they say, I'd like you to X, Y, Z would be really useful. Yeah. Then in in the coming weeks or months, when you then do X, Y, Z for them, they go, oh, okay, he cares about me and he wants to help me resolve whatever the thing is. Yeah. Um, that's been quite powerful. Yeah, I was I was going to say so if you could summarize like how how to build that sort of um coach athlete relationship in the best way or like my, my, not most efficient but like what would you say are the steps to do that because I know some people approach things differently when you when you get into a new environment how do you tackle that because I mean the biggest experience for me in both scenarios is going into my first job at Tunbridge um I've got like 30 40 rugby lads who half went professional half are just coming up so half are young half are really old and experienced and I've got to tackle like meeting these guys who think they're hot shit and then other ones who are just like calm and like nice or like other ones who are a bit standoffish who are just not sure if I actually care about them and it's just difficult and then coming to an environment like this where even though these are players that are essentially hot shit um they are like they're all like respectful some are still standoffish some are like this is just an intern but then it's just battling that underlying realizing that like yeah you've got to show that you care well how did how did you do it um in in your given environment like what sort of steps or tips could you give people when they go into a new environment so what i guess what is a little bit different for me say compared to that environment is that it's, it's a smaller group and a lot of it is individualized and one-to-one in nature. So when I first meet, meet a new athlete and we're going to work together, it would be, let's go for a coffee and just tell me about where you came from in cycling. What, what, what's going on in your world at the moment? What you're interested in outside of cycling? Um, how did you get in? So I can have those one-to-one conversations with a lot more ease because that's, that's how we're going to be working. Mm. Whereas you, can't go for 40 coffees <laughs> with every member um, of the rugby team. I think trying to find the time to to have in that environment short one-to-one conversations. So, I don't know, maybe they're in the, the rest period of they're doing a five sets of back squats, but actually just a small coaching cue and then just a little bit of chat. And it could start with the, something that's completely unrelated to the gym. Um or there might just be a small joke which kind of runs throughout a few sessions and then they get to know you a little bit better and maybe what you, you're interested in and then you end up talking about how they got into the sport and, oh, I used to play for that team. I had a friend who played for that team. And then it just, mm. time spent together is so, so powerful. It just, I, I guess this is what, what you're asking, how do you break down that first little barrier mm. and then it starts flowing a little bit and then there's a joke that, that you have when you come into the gym the next time. Um, and then you start to understand, okay, those five or six are really good mates. Um, that that guy's a little bit quieter, um, kind of who, who the characters are in the group and how, how the group um, functions together. Um, so, yeah, I think that the biggest thing for me is, is how you spend time showing that you care about them. 
Oh, 100%. I, I, I agree with that thoroughly in the sense like, yeah, I, individually, obviously, it's a different ball game. Um, and I wish I had more time with the lads. But like one thing I learned is just going around the gym floor, as you said, mid-set, not mid-set, after they finish their set, um, just chatting to them, like go over, just say morning. Like one thing I've seen the SNC coach here do is just go over to every athlete. As soon as they, they're all on the gym floor, he just says morning to all of them. And then that's bang. So they've recognized he's there. And then throughout the session, throughout the hour and 30 minutes, he'll just go over and speak to every one of them. And then even, even what I did, I just, you have that one joke that lands and then they laugh and you're like, sweet. You just got to show your personality at the end of the day. And I think that's one thing that SNC coaches need to really understand is that you can know all of the theory, know all the papers in the world. But if you're not someone who can is relatable or someone you can have a chat with, the athletes aren't going to come to you for anything. They're going to do it by themselves. And then next, you know, an athlete's doing something by himself that wasn't recommended by you because he doesn't think you're a good mate or, or something like that. He can't relate to you in any way. And he does something that's detriment to his performance, but you didn't know about it because you weren't there to speak to him or get him away from it in a way so it's just literally just take that first plunge i know it's daunting but you've literally just got to go in with the first hello how are you and then just try and try find something that you relate to about and then you can just build it on from there and one thing that's easy is literally talk about the sport you're in like a cyclist isn't going to hate cycling chat at the end of the day to an extent you know so you can literally just talk to them about stuff that they're actually in <laughs> imagine imagine you just go up to one of the rugby lads you're like oh do you watch you like, do you watch this rugby or whatever, World Cup or whatever? And you'd be like, don't ask about World Cup. You'd be like, bro, I was playing in it. <laughs> what are yeah. you talking about watching it? <laughs> that was that. Yeah. But imagine you go and talk to rugby, like about rugby to a rugby lad. And he's like, don't talk to me about rugby. Hate it. You'd be like, what? See, do you know? So like, <laughs> and, if, and, and if you do do that, mate, I, if I was honest, I'd hang up your whistle and stop being an SNC coach because you've just been extremely unlucky and there's no coming back from that. So, you know, obviously, but times of that are very minimal. So I think you're fine. I think, well, just to jump in there, I, something that I've been thinking about this year and it came from, oh, what's the book called? Yeah, Belonging by, I think, Owen Eastwood. And talked about this idea of belonging cues um, and how do you sort of sprinkle them in throughout interactions, whether that's with a group or individually, so that they feel like they belong to the group, um, so that when they turn up to a training session, it could it could be a, a comment about the kit they're wearing, um, and just like, oh, kit, that, like they're getting new kits, oh, kit, kit looks great on you, and they're like, oh, okay, I'm part of the team, oh yeah, we're all wearing the same kit, just that is so, they're so simple, mm. um, or have a game go on the weekend, it's like, oh, game, okay, we play as a team, it's just little things that you can sprinkle in, um, that if each athlete gets a few of them, they go, oh, yeah, I do belong to this thing. Um, mm. And we're all part of this thing together. Um, yeah, just trying to find different ways to do that has been something I've been trying to explore this year. Even even the use of like, the word we, like I try and use that. And that's not just me being deceptive or anything to the athletes I work with. That, that's genuinely how I feel. Like, oh, uh, let, let's have a chat about um, how we, we might adapt training um, post-race if X, Y, Z happens. Mm. It's not how am I going to adapt to your training? Like, we're in this together. Mm. Um, so actually just that simple word, I think gives a sense of we're in this thing together. Mm. It's very like everything you're doing is very deliberate, isn't it? And so it's even that, that thing of like, how do I build a coach athlete relationship? How do I build a good relationship with my athletes? How can I further it? It's very deliberate. Like you need to have a plan. You yeah. can't just go out and do 
random stuff and hope it works. Like you actually have to have some thought behind it. You have to put in the energy, like, like Matt was saying, the energy of like going around, making sure that you're saying a little thing throughout the day to every athlete, like changing maybe the, the words or vocabulary that you use. Yeah. And I think it's, it's easy to fall into the trap of, Oh God, Matt. Okay. Uh, I think it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking you need to do really complicated stuff. So oh, I need to have a really in-depth conversation about how their life's going, and yeah, you know, like, oh, just kind of yeah. There may be a time when that's appropriate, and that will come up when it's meant to come up. But actually, just a few really small things done repeatedly over time lays the foundation for the other stuff to happen. Right. But it's so easy. So say the, the easiest one is say you got a really quiet person in the group. Mm. They're probably not going to come up to you at a training session and have a conversation about, even if it's something important, they're probably going to go, oh, just wait a bit, I'll wait a bit, wait mm. a bit. And then the session's done. Mm. So it's thinking, okay, before each session, yeah, they're probably less likely to actively come and have a conversation with me. Mm. So in the first five, 10 minutes, let me just go, just check in and see how they're doing. Mm. Because the really bubbly person who's likes being center of attention is going to run around and just be really chatty. I'm probably going to bump into that person at some point and we're going to have a chat because they're going to tell me what's gone on the whole day and the whole week. Yeah. And that's fine. So just kind of knowing your people and yeah, what yeah, they're yeah. likely to be like, I think is, uh, is important. Yeah, that's a really good point. Now, what were you going to say? I was just going to, yeah, just back what he's, what reinforced what Paddy's just said in the sense that like, yeah, also know the session you're going into. So say if everyone's fresh and you've just finished it, you had a game on Saturday, like a rugby match on Saturday and everyone's fresh and it's Monday, bring the energy, be like, let's get that big fish boys. Let's go, let's hit it hard. But if they've just finished a game and it's a quick turnaround and you've got a training session where you're not going to do that much don't come in flying like guns blazing and everything because the pre- people won't appreciate that. So you've just got to adapt to the training set. Just walk around and be like, hey, mate, how are you doing? How, how's your body feeling? Just like little questions like that. But also don't be interrogating. Be like, how's your body feeling? How's that shoulder? Shoulder feeling all right? You know, just, just be like, how are you? Simple question, how are you? And then develop it on there. So yeah, just adapt to the training day. Be wary. Match the vibe that people are coming in with. <laughs> and if you need to change it, then change it. But yeah, just adapt. Just to jump on the back of you just sort of said about asking questions there, something I've worked on this year is trying to ask better questions. And what I found I was doing was back up. So it came out of a some stuff with a mentor here at Loughborough, um, head of coaching development here, Mark Jerram. And it came up because I was saying, look, with some athletes I have have brilliant conversations. Almost every conversation it just flows and I get into detail and they there's no friction there. Mm. And then other conversations, they're not bad conversations. It's just there's something not quite the same as these brilliant conversations. And it would change between athletes and athletes that I've coached in the past. So I said, okay, what, what do you think might be the difference between the two? And we basically got to the point of actually maybe it's the quality of the questions that you're asking. And in the great conversations, you're asking very open-ended questions. And you're basically just being a thinking partner with them. Mm. That There's no predetermined direction generally speaking, in the conversation. And you're just trying to find out a little bit more information to then make decisions on. Whereas what I was finding with the other athletes was maybe sometimes they're a little bit quieter or I just hadn't spent as much time with them um, and they were newer athletes that I was working with. And I was always finding, I was asking the question, 
So oh, how's training going? Uh, look, look like you had a great session on Friday. I don't need to say the second bit there. I can just say, how's training going? And they can tell me where they're at with it. Mm. So I was almost sort of caveating every question because I didn't want them to be stuck with not knowing what to say. Mm. Then as soon as I took that back, the quality of the conversations that went exponentially through the roof. It was, mm. it, and it was such a simple thing. I just had to hold myself back from saying more than I needed to. And actually let them do the speaking, let them bring the information. And then you just peel back layers of the onion. And then all of a sudden you're having conversations with someone that you never had that kind of conversation with before. Mm. It was, it was, I didn't think it would have as much of an impact as it did, um, but it had been massive for me over mm. the last probably six months or so. Where do you think that came from? Of like, Why do you think for the one group you were able to not ask that kind of secondary question and for the other group you would, like what was the difference there, do you think? Um, I think some of it was just the sheer amount of time that I'd spent. So with some of them I've probably been working with for coming up three, maybe three plus years now, and just the sheer amount of time and understanding that you build with someone over the course of three years. Yeah. I can walk into a room and tell you probably how they're feeling. Mm. You just kind of get that that understanding with that person. So I think some of it was just a, a sheer amount of time. Um, and then maybe some of it was sort of assumptions that I was making mm. that actually I was by maybe starting some of those answers for them or having a kind of really clear idea about where I need this conversation to go, I need to communicate all this information in this coaching catch-up or in this session. I was almost holding myself back from getting the information from them. Mm. Um, so I think there was sort of too much pre-planning in my head mm. of like, right, okay, we're going to cover all these things. Um, and actually just go, yeah, okay, these are some of the things we might need to talk about. Yeah. Just rein it back in and just go with the flow. Um, you know all the answers to the question already. I was training Friday, look at nice. Next yeah. question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unless all these bad just tick, tick, tick. Like, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> and we're done. And they're like, I haven't even said it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and probably, they're, they're the kind of polar extremes, and the majority is hopefully are kind of good and kind of medium end of it. But it was just how can we shift as many of those conversations and interactions? to really impactful conversation. And yeah. then not that every single one needs to be a live story and, and yeah. Yeah, amazing, amazing, but yeah. just kind of really good quality interactions because then it all snowballs from there. Then you've got the layer of trust and understanding and then we need to have a difficult conversation. You've The process of getting to that base has been quicker. So, mm. um, yeah. Mm. And, and I guess, I mean, we've talked about communication. Another thing we want to talk about is like building culture. Mm. It sounds a lot like all the things we've already talked about are what go into building a culture where people like training, where people feel respected, valued, belonged, um, and where someone might actually want to come train even when it's going poorly. Mm. And the first time we had coffee, we talked about cycling specifically because yeah. it's really interesting um, that it's a team sport, mm. but there's also individuals yeah. and, and, and maybe you can just speak a bit about cycling first, of how there can be someone that's doing really well for the team, but not well individually. Because that's all that really matters if you want to progress is your individual sports, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting balance at the level that we're currently working at with the team. So if you take the Netflix documentary end of the spectrum, mm. you've got in the majority of the teams, they're working for a... GC contender and everyone else essentially is sacrificing their own personal results for their leader to try and get them as high. And what's level. GC for that? Uh, so that's your person that's going for the overall. So when? So yeah. So in Vanderbilt. 
uh, yeah, so in that team, but that's a really good example. Yeah. You've got Wout Van Aert, who's one of the best cyclists in the world mm. and has got a really dynamic set of skills and could win a bunch of spring, could get in a breakaway, could do a bunch of different things. And then you've got Jonas Vingegaard, who's the climber, who's their GC contender. Mm. And the, 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 scene, the scene on the bus where Wout Van Aert's going, I think he said, oh, can, can I get in the break today? Yeah. And then you've got the, the DS, who's the guy who basically sets the tactics and essentially running that team on the day. He's going, uh, uh, but, but, but we're riding for Jonas today. And Mark's going, but, but do I have, all, like, do you give me authority mm. to, to go and do that thing? And he's going, oh, and it just like, makes you realize all the way up to that level, mm. those conversations are still happening. Mm. Um, and it was really interesting to watch that. So I guess at that level, it is, you could go a whole career without winning a race mm. and you could be an incredibly valuable member right. and being getting paid hundreds of thousands a year right. to do your job. At the level we're operating at, yeah, you've still got that team dynamic of let's try and get a result for a certain rider. But ultimately, for those mm. riders to progress up to the next level, they probably need to get the results themselves. Mm. So it's that really interesting balance of how do you support individual rider development towards their goals, but also appreciate that there's a team goal overall. And I don't think there's a right right answer. You've just got to try and marry the two and figure out where people are on their development mm. journeys and who, for someone actually playing a really important team role, but still getting a, I don't know, a top 20 overall, is a really good result for them on their journey. And then you've got someone who potentially about to break into the next level up, that's probably not an appropriate role for them because actually they're more suited to trying to get the overall result mm-hmm. of the team. So, yeah, that's a, a tricky one at times, I guess. So so I guess that's, that's where it stemmed from, like this culture of how do you build a culture where people want to come to even when it's not going well. And I guess, like, big picture is when it's not going well for the team. Yeah. But I guess even harder than that is when it's going well for the team, but it's not going well for you because you're having to sacrifice your own scores for the team. Yeah. And how, yeah, I guess like, how do you have those conversations or, or maybe even just like, how do you build that culture of, of, of where people still want to come? Hmm. So, or how have you built it yeah. in the team that you've done? Has it worked? Mm. Kind of what what have you come across that you're thinking mm, we need to change that or kind of roadblocks or difficulties that do happen? Yeah. So it's a really big thing for myself and the, the staff team this year was how do we create that sense of a team culture? Um, so again, in that book, Belonging, Owen Eastwood, he, I think he refers to it as... Who, uh, who was that author? Uh, Owen Eastwood. Owen Eastwood. Um, so I think he's sort of consultant but basically we'll go into different teams around this set idea of culture and belonging oh, okay. um, talks about various examples throughout his book um, I think he refers to it as the engineering of the experience so essentially how do you want people to think think and feel um, and behave in, in your environment right and belonging was a really important one um, for us and we also had a workshop with the sports um, psychology um, we have two placements um, with us working with us and they gave us a short workshop, the staff team, on culture. And one of the things they talked about was artifacts of culture. Um, and that could be simple as team kit or the words you use or the phrases you use or the, the way, the general way that the team interacts. So if you walked into the Lightning team environment or the academy team environment, what would you expect to see? Mm. And everyone's in the same kit is the obvious one. Um, we don't have team bikes, but in other teams it would be everyone's on the same bike. Um, it's just those kind of really sometimes conscious but sometimes probably most of the time subconscious things um, and that's where I guess you can link in your belonging cues as well um, but it, so I guess back to when it's going badly um, another thing we try to do is 
and this is something that Mark Jam, the guy that's helped with some mentorship stuff, is, is massive on, is celebrating others, intentionally celebrating others. So let's say the, the team gets a, a good result overall and someone's really sacrificed themselves, but maybe maybe didn't finish the race or they had a result which on paper maybe doesn't look great for themselves. Mm. Actually, intentionally in the, in the post-race debrief going, I thought you did that really well and that's really contributed to the team today. Again, it just it's such an easy thing to not do because mm. you think, oh, yeah, they, 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 they know they did the job today and mm. obviously because of the team. But people actually are hearing mm. and the message is, we care about you, I care about you, and thought you did a really great job today. Mm. Is, I mean, you know, when that happens in, in our own lives, you go, yeah. oh, actually, or if your supervisor says, oh, great job, thought, thought you, the presentation you gave today was, was yeah. fantastic. Even if they don't want to hear it in that moment, because I could imagine sometimes if somebody does what they need to do for the team. They didn't finish the race, so for themselves it was bad, right? They might be a bit annoyed. Yeah. And then you have a coach coming up and saying like, hey, really appreciate you, did an amazing job. In the moment, yeah. I might be like, like, bug off, like I don't want to hear it. Yeah. But afterwards, um, I think even because you said it, I'm like, oh, actually, in the moment I was really frustrated, but I am appreciated, yeah. you know? Yeah. And something, yeah, yeah, ideas popping into my head. <laughs> Something that we did as well was was we asked, how do you want us to interact with you post race? Oh, okay. So yeah. we, we have a team debrief, and that's essentially a non-negotiable. It's not. Do you want to be part of that? Right. In that. Yeah. But but if the race goes badly, do you want me to come up and say how did the race go, or mm. do you just want to kind of acknowledge that it might have gone great, or it might have gone badly? That actually you just need some space, and I'm going to come and touch base with you half an hour, an hour post-race. Mm. And actually having those conversations up front, there's not a weird thing to do. They're not going, oh, what, they're trying to like, sign me out. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. actually, I want to do the best thing for you. Yeah, um, yeah. And for some of them, it was, I just need some time post-race to just debrief, like stick me on the, on the turbo trainer, spin my legs for 10 minutes, I'll go and sort my stuff out, get changed, and then we'll have a chat. For some of them, they wanted to chat the next day. Others, it's, right, basically, as soon as is appropriate, I just want to unload everything that happened in the race and... You just listen. You might you might say some stuff, but I just want to unload everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and having those conversations up front's been been useful, so that you can actually be intentional about what you're going to say post race. Mm. Um, so sometimes it's they just get unload a bunch of stuff. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. You have a brief conversation then, and then you might ping them a, a message on WhatsApp in the evening, going just just follow up for the race today. Thought X Y Z. Um, but appreciate mm. you doing whatever mm. um, and that's just another way to kind of close that loop mm -hmm. we go again mm -hmm. that's really cool um and and also crocs <laughs> team crocs yeah so that was uh how did that start so that <laughs> we were at a track session at darby Benadrome. um it was well, i think the session was like 8 or 10 p.m or something it was quite late when the idea then sort of popped out and, and so for some reason, they were talking about Crocs, and someone, said, I can't remember who said, it was like, oh, God, how cool would it be to have Team Crocs? And it's one of those moments where everyone looks at each other and goes, nah, and then they go, yeah. <laughs> so Team Mechanic, guy called Steve Drury, ex-Army guy, fantastic, fantastic guy. Um, he was there, and he's like, right, let's do it. So <laughs> he said, said to one of the riders, like, can you... And at this point, I wasn't, I wasn't really sure if we were being serious or not. It's like, let's just explore. But we'll just see, I don't know, how much crops cost, or do we get a deal here, or can find some distributor. So I said to one of the riders, right, can you just coordinate between the riders, like roughly what, what croc size are they yeah. going to be, and do a bit of research on, are there purple crocs out there, or are there pink crocs? So 
she set up, set up a group chat and it was a carnage the next few days, like random crocs getting pinged in there. And then suddenly got a summary of the shoe size. I was like, okay, we might be doing this thing. So in the end, I've yeah, found it on a random Swedish website. Uh, <laughs> really good deal. No, it's just like purple, purple crocs. So again, back to artifacts and belonging cues. We got everyone on the team to set crocs. And it sounds really silly, trivial, just thing that, oh, haha, you're crocs. But I think it had an impact. Mm. And I think it had a certainly an impact on culture and probably on performance as well. Mm. People turned up to races in the crocs. And then the gibbet, I didn't know that was a thing, but the gibbet things that you can stick in the crop. Oh, yeah, yeah. They start getting a bunch of those, and then someone would buy someone else a gibbet, and then someone got initials for everyone. So on the Italy trip, like it was initial for, for everyone, um, and a lightning bolt. So, again, a silly thing, but actually turned mm-hmm. into something that they'll, they'll, always, they'll always remember that pair of crocs, and it would be part of that team. Mm-hmm. That was actually quite a cool thing. So mm-hmm. I sort of got them. They came in a little Ziploc bag thing. Um, I just put a note inside each one saying, um, like, really looking forward to the season. Um, uh, probably some reference to the to the race coming up. Um, great to have you part of the team. Mm. And a few of them said back, like, that was a re- really nice thing to actually just get a note in there, mm. like, named to me to say, like, I'm part of this and we're in it together. Mm. Mm. That is really, really cool. Matt, what, what are you going to say? I, I, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, and you never know when you can start a tradition with all these little ideas. Like that croc thing might be a tradition that lasts within the team forever. And it's a tradition that like maybe, as you said in the beginning of this po- of, of this chat, that um, it makes you feel like you belong. So like say two years down the line, you'll be like, oh, you've done your first, you're a debutant for this race. Here's your set of crocs. You're finally like a big part of this team now. And then that's a tradition that will stick, you know, a a funny tradition that has just come out of nothing, a funny little idea. And now is just something that's stuck and made someone feel like they belong even more. Yeah. Mm. And that's back to that time, that piece around spending time together. And there's very little that can, if you have a a small amount of time, you can be really intentional about how you use it. But the team camps that we've done here at the uni, so some teams will go away to Spain and part budget and part just the logistics of, a lot of student athletes and stuff we can't do that so we've just used Loughborough as a base and we do those two or three times throughout the year and people will come on a Friday and they stay through to the Sunday and we do a bunch of stuff all the performance support on the Friday and then rides and dinners and, and team activities but just that time spent together the little silly things that come up um, that, that then they, they just every time you see them in that group that crops up again and it goes oh yeah we're like that thing doesn't come up in the other group that they're with or their group of friends. It's mm. specific to this group. And that probably comes up with the rugby guys as well. It'll be something really silly within the group or a few of them. It's this guy's known for that thing and not nasty jokes, but just funny things. Mm. Um, you can't really replace those. Mm. Uh, you can do as many yeah. workshops as you want, but that's the stuff that really binds people together, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess before we move on to the last little question or the last little section that we have for today at least um is is i guess this is, it's easy when things are going well and it sounds like the team that you have now like they are at least in in the majority of it really working well together and it's mm-hmm. going well and the culture's there how how in those times or what you're what are you doing now not to get complacent to be like nice we've built the culture job done now we can coast and just coach how, what are you doing now to, I guess, just continue that culture building when, I guess, in September or October when new riders are coming in to make sure they're part of the group? Yeah. Uh, 
I think do, doing okay. so, so I just ask 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 you so many questions. Mm -hmm. But the main thing is how do you not get complacent in this time to continue that culture to be built and moving forward? Yeah. Uh, I think doing the, the basics, not forgetting the, the, the basics that got well, say basics, but the, the fundamentals that got you there. Yeah. So they've they've got to stay consistent. Mm. Uh, I think for, for individual riders trying to keep it process focused as well. Um, and actually the, the thing that got us there, yeah, culture, all that sort of stuff. But you still gotta do all the training. Mm. Um, <laughs> you've got to have process goals in the races and just just trying to come back to fundamentals of okay, how, how can we get a little bit more out in this next race? Mm -hmm. uh, what are we gonna focus on? And that, that for some it's outcome supported by process stuff. For some it is just purely process. I'm gonna focus on my gear selection going into corners in a crit race. Mm. And fantastic. Mm -hmm. Focus on that thing, and we think that if you can do that really well, that's going to make you slightly better um, in terms of performance on the bike. Um, I think a dynamic which has been one that I wrestle with is the balance between uh, is where performance sits in this, um, and how I guess how cutthroat you need to be mm -hmm. as you essentially as you go further up the, mm -hmm. the ladder of performance um, and how this kind of, you, you could have the best team culture in the world mm -hmm. and everything could be lovely and people get on well and there's, there's a good environment around the team but where the performance but are you happy with that if performance isn't great or yeah, is, yeah, if performance yeah. is great and you haven't got the like how, do yeah. the, how do you juggle the two because this isn't just a social a social team like, like we're here to the reason we're here is to raise bikes yeah. and perform at a high level yeah that is what brings these people in the same room so it's and that's something i'm trying to figure out at the moment mm. um and, and kind of work probably a reflection i've had this season on to next season of how do you still keep kind of performance at the core of it mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's through. yeah. The last little bit that we talked about, and I do want to bring up really quickly, is this idea that you mentioned about being above and below, below the snow line, yeah. and and um, just quickly on that before turning it over to you, of like, especially in this time where you have people in so many different like stages of life and education. Some of them are really passionate about training, but they're in the first year of uni, and they also they want to go out. Yeah. Or maybe people further along that are still kind of living the uni lifestyle, but are actually trying to, you know, maybe become pro or whatever the next mm -hmm. level is, yeah. right? And, and and kind of people whose priorities aren't matching up to, I guess, their lifestyle. Yeah. Um, which I don't know if you coined it or if somebody if know. somebody else has said above or below the <laughs> yeah. snow line. Um, so maybe just speak a little bit about that and and yeah, yeah. So that was. It wasn't my idea. <laughs> it's a great idea, but it's not mine. Uh, so it's a guy called Pete Keane who has been a, a mentor to me over the last year or so, and he kind of put it out there to our squad in our squad launch at the start of the year, so back in October. He got probably 20, 25 people in the academy, and it was he'd come in to, to sort of speak for 20, 30 minutes at the end of once we'd all introduced ourselves. And he basically put in this idea out there that of of a snow line and the, if, if the kind of performance pyramid is a mountain, when you're doing recreational sport, to be honest, when you're doing most of junior youth sport, um, club sport, you're 
you're walking in the what is the equivalent of the foothills. Mm. You can have your trainers on, you can have a t-shirt, pair of shorts, and your water bottle. And if it rains at like the end of the world, you can just play around in the foothills, and there's not much danger down there. As you start going further up the mountain, or performance is the analogy here, you start getting towards this metaphorical snow line, and the equipment or the, the things that equip you to do well at, in the foothills aren't going to get you very far above the snow line mm. and actually gets pretty dangerous above the snow line and you need a whole different set of equipment you need your axe your, your pickaxe you need you need your full mm. snow gear in case of the avalanche or the temperature drops or it starts snowing and that was the metaphor he was trying to make that actually to go above the snow line into essentially elite high performance pro sport it, it only gets more severe as you get towards the top um, and actually the things, the habits, behaviours, things that you need to do in your life to keep progressing you above the snow line, it, 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 they are different. Mm. And I guess the stage that a lot of the riders that we're working with are at is they're either right on the snow line, some are above. You then get scenarios where they're saying they want to be above, but maybe they don't quite know what the things that they need to equip themselves with to keep progressing above. Mm. Some are going, no, I want to be below and I'm happy here and that's good. But it's, it's when you kind of get that grey area. And a lot of them are still figuring that out. They're going, yeah, maybe like a career in cycling, but I also like other stuff and I want to do one of my degree and I want to have a group of friends that I go out with you and maybe that evolves over their three years at uni. And actually first year is an appreciation that, look, you're going to have your first year at uni, you're never going to have that first year again. Mm. But there are compromises there that that's fine. But it's then when we go, right, I want to be around the snow line, that's where I want to go. I think there is a responsibility as a coach and as a program to go, these are the things that are required to get there. Mm. You can't, it's not just cruising. <laughs> it cannot, it's an unreasonable thing to do to go and essentially try and make a career out of playing sport. Not yeah. many people can do it yeah. and it's freaking hard to get there. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever domain you're in, it's really hard. So actually, the sacrifices you're going to have to make, we need to be on the same page about them. Otherwise, mm. it's not fair. Like, you can't, me going, oh, yeah, all this, all good, all good, and then you don't get to the thing. Well, they're going, well, why didn't you tell me? Mm. So just the understanding there, I think, is really important. Mm. Mm. So that, that's that's the idea of the snow line. It's this big mountain, and at some point, probably the high-performance elite pro sport yeah. barrier or at least grey area around it, there are different requirements when yeah. you get above that. So have you started now off the back of that and learning that just kind of having conversations or even just being a bit more aware of maybe where certain athletes are and, and having those conversations with them. Yeah. Cause I guess the thing with that is then like over the years then priorities change yeah. and then coming back to like, all right, how are you feeling? Do you want to stay where you are? Actually, do you want to progress? Yeah. Or maybe somebody was above it and like, ah, it's not for me. You know, okay, that's fine. How we transition you lower, yeah. lower down. Is that something that now you've started doing? Yeah, or trying, maybe just being a bit more aware of it, I suppose. Yeah, something that, I, again, trying to be more intentional with. And it's not the conversation that you can have every time you catch up with an athlete, otherwise it just becomes <laughs> overwhelming and loses yeah. its um, yeah. okay. sense of importance. But whether it's a couple of times a season, um, but I had a, a conversation a couple of days ago with a mm. rider who we've been working with for, for a long time now, and it was just recalibrating. It was going, okay, where do we want to be in three years' time? Mm. And where do we want to be in a year? And what's it going to take to get there? Because the goal was pretty punchy. And it's like, okay, that's good. But we've got to figure out how, like, how we get into that mm. place because not easy. So, mm. um, I, yeah, probably the, the, the next time I'll have a lot of those conversations we get to the end of this season, I'll have an off-season time to just kind of have a bit of time away from the bike and uh, regroup. 
and then we'll start having those conversations about okay, where where are we trying to go over the next year? Yeah, uh, what's that kind of ambitious goal that could be the sort of thing that you daydream about? You think oh, I might I might be able to get to that place. Mm. That could be the next level up. It could be a few tiers up. Mm. Um, what's that ambitious goal that you wake up and you think? That's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know if you can get there. I mm-hmm. can't promise you anything, but do you want to go on that pretty daunting journey of figuring out whether we may be able to get mm-hmm. there? That really excites me mm-hmm. and hopefully excites the athletes. Yeah. But we need to be aligned about what that journey might look like yeah. and, and, and give you the tools that may get you there. Yeah, that's really exciting. We really, really appreciate you coming in. We do have one more thing, which is quick fire questions, which is something we do with all our guests, which is just quick fire questions from Matt. Not, you answer them no, as no, quick no. as possible. And it's just a little fun thing. Okay. Um, but but before we do that, we really appreciate you coming in. Hopefully we can get you back again. Maybe some exciting stuff in the fall um, or the autumn, I think would be really cool. Talk a little bit about like athlete health. Um, that'd, be, that'd be really, really cool. But really appreciate your time this morning. Um, Thanks for having me on. I think it's been great. It's been enjoyable. Yeah, it's been really fun. And it's been, it's been good to actually record one of our conversations because the two that we've had so far have been really, really Yeah. All right, without further ado, we'll, we'll toss it over to Matt for quick fire questions. Sweet. First one, off the dome. Would you rather continue and become like a professional squash player and have a pr- proper career or professional cyclist and have a proper career in that? You'd have to say the question. Go again. You cut out. You cut out for the first option. Um, so like a professional squash player or professional cyclist? Cyclist now. Uh, yeah. Even even What's if your, you didn't have any injuries, that's, that's a really hard. One. Like a full ten year career, but we'll go we'll go cyclist then. Um, what is your go to lazy dinner? Like takeaway? Yeah, or any, yeah, yeah, like what? It's a good, good answer. Takeaway. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm quite fill pasta. It's like two minutes and I'm done. There you go. Sweet. Uh, what item is worth spending more money on? Bib shorts. Bib shorts. Is your bed made right now? yeah okay nice, nice. <laughs> if you were to write a book what would it be about could be your phd to be fair excluding your phd topic excluding coaching as well it would be something it would be something on that topic oh, okay and then do you cannonball into the pool or dip a toe in first <laughs> uh probably cannonball if I'm, if I'm getting in then i may as well get in full way yeah Full board, full board, Patty. <laughs> well, again, really appreciate you coming on, Matt. Thanks for thanks for uh, coming on as well. I think it's late <laughs> for you, bedtime for you, nine thirty over there. Ah, it's all good. Enjoyed it. Loved it. Loved it. Hope you guys are all well, and hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, it was great, yeah. Matt. Take us out. This has been the RSS podcast. We're out. Mm-hmm.